3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we talk with Dr. Paul Offit, pediatrician, vaccinologist, and member of the FDA COVID vaccine advisory panel, just as Pfizer announced today that it has submitted data to the FDA showing its vaccine is effective in children as young as five. We'll talk with Offit about how soon vaccines could be available to young children and how to weigh the risks and benefits of this latest development, a topic that happens to be at the center of Offit's new book, You Bet Your Life, on the triumphs and tragedies that have accompanied medical innovations and what we often get wrong when we try to assess risk. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Pfizer and BioNTech announced today that they've submitted data to the FDA from their COVID vaccine trial of children 5 to 11 years old, showing that their vaccine is safe and effective. So what are the next steps and how long before a vaccine could be available to kids as young as 5? For that, we're fortunate to have Dr. Paul Offit with us today, a pediatrician who sits on the FDA vaccine advisory panel and co-invented The rotavirus vaccine. Offit also has a timely new book on the history of medical innovation that gives context to what we're experiencing today. Dr. Offit, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And this new data from Pfizer, what will the FDA do with them?
4: Well, again, it, it's, you're looking at what I'm looking at so far, which is a press release. We're, we're sort of in an era of science by press release. Um, we know that it's a 2,300-child study. We know that um, the, the dose was roughly one-third of the dose given to older adolescents and adults, about 10 micrograms per dose. We know that it was two doses. We know that it was three, three weeks apart. And we know that the company has told us that it was safe and effective. But we really need to see all the data before we're going to make that decision about whether or not to approve this through emergency use authorization. I mean, so the question is, how did they come to that 10 microgram dose? What other mm-hmm. doses did they look at in the dose ranging trial do how, how good, how, how um, uh, universal were those immune responses? Did all the children have, have an excellent immune response or, or only 80% or 85%. And, and most importantly, safety, 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 safety. And that's, that's the hardest part here because here you have a, a several thousand person child trial and you're about to give this vaccine to millions of children and you know you invariably learn the lessons about rare side effects the hard way
3: so does the 10 microgram dose make sense to you given the fact that they're they're smaller so they may not need 30 like adults
4: sure but again you'd like to see the data i mean when when companies make vaccines they do something called phase 1 trials which are dose ranging trials so i'm going to presume when we look at the data that they tried three micrograms, five micrograms, 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, 30 micrograms. And then they looked at, look at the safety profile, looked at the ability of each of those doses to induce an immune response, which would hopefully correlate with protection. But you want to see those data. Right now, you and I are both looking at a press release.
3: Yeah. So how long will that take, do you think? Because we've seen estimates that a vaccine could be available to to young children, children 5 to 11 years old, as early as Halloween we're hearing today that they've submitted their initial data and that they plan to request authorization in the coming weeks. Does that delay the timeline that's been suggested, or at least the hoped for a timeline that was suggested, say, by Dr. Fauci?
4: I would say it's possible. Um, You know, when you looked at, at when The data were submitted, say, for the adult uh, trials uh, under emergency use authorization. They were submitted in November. We met on December 10th and December 17th to approve Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine. And then within days, those vaccines rolled off the shelf. So so I think it's possible that in a month to a month and a half, we could see a vaccine for children now between 5 and 11 years of age. But we'll see.
3: From your vantage point at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm sure you've been paying attention to the national numbers, are we in a dire situation When it comes to children, we're seeing stats that about a quarter or so are making up the new cases
4: exactly I, I think the delta variant has reached down and found children when when the virus first entered this country uh, early last year about three percent of cases were in children now it's closer to 27 percent we're having two hundred 250,000 cases in children a week we're having 2,000 hospital admissions a week I was just on service last week and and our hospital consistent with the national average is seeing a lot of children in the hospital with uh, with covid uh, several in the intensive care unit it's mm-hmm. it's hard to watch and so we I can't wait for there to be a vaccine. And then what's going to be even more frustrating is that when we have a vaccine, convincing people to get it because we have a vaccine for the 12 to 15 year old. But only about 40 percent of parents choose to give it.
3: Yes. Uh, Really quickly, could you clarify the role of your advisory panel and the broader FDA? What role will you play in the approval process?
4: Right. So, so what happens, the way this works is the, the company submits their data as, a, as usually anywhere from a 50 to 100 page document. Then the FDA reviews all of those cases. So they look at every case of a child that was vaccinated to, to look carefully for any safety issues. Then they, too, come up with a document that's 50 to 100 pages long, usually about a week before our meeting. Um, we get to read all those data, and then we have a meeting, and we come to a conclusion, and we have a vote. Do do we agree that this vaccine could be distributed as a say as a vaccine, two dose vaccine for for five to eleven year olds? Then then that's our advice. Then the FDA usually in a day or two takes takes that advice or doesn't take that advice. Typically, they take that advice. And then it goes <laughs> to the CDC, which is, the, you know, the, the, really the FDA is a regulatory body. The CDC is the recommending body. Right. So that, that's really where the recommendation comes. And that usually comes within a week. So it all happens pretty quickly once we, um, once we meet to discuss the vaccine.
3: I see. Thanks for clarifying that. I've been curious about the advisory panel versus the broader FDA. And then are you hearing anything about vaccine approval for kids under five? Meaning, not so much approval, but when you could expect data submitted about that.
4: Right. So according to Pfizer, they they've they've they're in the midst of doing those trials. Here the dose in a, a child between six months and five years of age is three micrograms per dose as a two-dose vaccine. So again, mm-hmm. this is now a tenth of the dose given to older adolescents and adults. And supposedly they think they're going to be ready to submit that those data by no later than the end of October, beginning of November. So by by the new year hopefully we'll have a vaccine for children down to six months of age.
3: And again, from your vantage point, how concerned are you about transmission and infection in babies or those zero to five? Are you seeing a lot of that?
4: We certainly have children in our hospital less than five years of age, including in the intensive care unit. And so it can happen. It is, it is less common. Certainly when the virus came into this country, um, I would say probably 90, 93% of the deaths were in people over 55. So we were very good at vaccinating um, our older people and people with high risk medical conditions. Um, But we haven't been very good, obviously, about vaccinating um, children because we didn't have a vaccine. So now we have a vaccine for the 12 to 15 year old. um, And hopefully we'll be able to have a vaccine for younger children because they represent a significant part part of the population. And if we're going to reach herd immunity, Hmm. it's critical that the children do get vaccinated.
3: Hmm, That's my next question. But let me quickly invite our listeners to join the conversation. I'm sure they have questions about the, these new data submitted by Pfizer and and what that could mean for kids and a vaccine. Also curious listeners um, whether or not you plan to vaccinate or inoculate, kids right away once it is authorized 866 733 again 866 733 email us forum at kqed.org or get in touch on twitter or facebook with your questions or comments at kqed forum we're talking with paul Offit, professor of pediatrics and vaccinology the university of pennsylvania school of medicine director of the vaccine education center the children's hospital of philadelphia so dr Offit. Could getting kids 5 to 11 vaccinated get us to herd immunity, get us to the point that we would need to be at to really manage this?
4: That's a great question. I would say right now, if you look at at the country, probably about 55% of the population is vaccinated probably another 100 million people at least have been naturally infected. I mean, when you see those data on CNN or MSNBC or Fox that roughly 42 million people have been infected, that that number is off by at least a factor of three. So so I think that at least 100 million people have been also naturally infected. Now those aren't two separate groups. Obviously there are people who've been naturally infected and immunized and vice versa, but you're probably at about 75% population immunity because natural infection also protects against serious disease. You probably need to get to at least 90% population immunity. So there's at least another 15 or 20% of the population that needs to be vaccinated, which is probably going to be about 30 million people. And you you have about 65 million that are just simply saying, no thanks.
3: But we're hearing that, uh, for example, this past week was one of the slowest weeks with regard to vaccine uptake. There's been a decline in terms of pace of people who are seeking out the vaccine. Just a little bit ago, you talked about the concern around vaccine uptake for kids because of what you've seen among teens. What do you attribute this decline to?
4: Well, I think in terms of children, uh, parents see children as particularly vulnerable, and the question that you asked before is sort of the critical one. So, when you did, when we did that trial, say twelve to fifteen year olds, Pfizer did that trial. Um, that was a twenty-three hundred person trial, and so when you then approve that as as a vaccine for for uh, twelve to fifteen years. 12 to 15 year olds, you're about to give it to millions of, of, of children. So you're, you're trying to make a prediction based on thousands for what's going to happen in millions. And that's always hard because sometimes you find out things uh, that are only going to be found out when it's in millions of people. So, for example, with the mRNA vaccines, we know that they can cause myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle that can occur in about roughly one per 20,000 uh, uh, people. You, don't, you know, we're not going to pick that up usually in pre-approval trials or with the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. There, there can be con- severe clotting, including clotting in the brain that occurs in one in 500,000 people, which sort of gets to your question earlier. You know, at what point do you feel comfortable? Does a parent feel comfortable saying, okay, I feel, I, I feel confident now that the benefits of that, this vaccine clearly outweigh weigh the risks, knowing that there are risks." but the fact of the matter is and it's sort of the point of this book there are no risk free choices there never are there's just choices to take different risks so the goal is to try and as dispassionately as possible pick the lesser risk
3: well i should rem- remind people your book is titled you bet your life from blood transfusions to mass vaccination the long and risky history of medical innovation. And we're talking with Dr. Paul Offit. Pfizer and BioNTech announced today that it submitted data to the FDA showing that its COVID vaccine is safe and effective in children ages 5 through 11. What are your questions about the COVID vaccine for kids that age or generally as the FDA considers Pfizer's safety and efficacy data. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us forum at kqed.org. Do you think the supply will be there once this is authorized? That's also been a question in terms of Pfizer's availability of shots.
4: Um, I think so. I, I don't think that they would ask for approval under EUA unless they knew they had the manufacturing capacity to to do that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that's true. I mean, one of the, the interesting things about this whole um, Operation Warp Speed uh, of bringing us these vaccines is the government really has taken the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies. They have sort of guaranteed that they will buy a certain number of doses, um, which is unusual, obviously, in the world of vaccines. So I think, yeah, I think there'll be the supply. The supply will be there.
3: Well, we'll have more with Dr. Paul Offit after the break. Stay with us. We're talking vaccines. And after the break, we'll talk boosters, too. So you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Paul Off at this hour, pediatrician, vaccinologist, and member of the FDA COVID vaccine advisory panel just as Pfizer announced today that it has submitted data to the FDA showing its vaccine is effective in children as young as five. Dr. Offit has a new book, You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. You can join the conversation, email us, forum at kqed.org, call us 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. So just before the break, I was asking you about supply of vaccines, and that was also a question since now, uh, you know, the authorities have confirmed that uh, Americans can get booster shots if they meet three types of criteria. First, can you talk a little bit about the about the criteria, explain who is eligible for the booster shot, Dr. Offit?
4: Right, so this has been confusing, and I think confusing… Yes. American public i think when president biden sort of stood at that podium and said that starting on september 20th there's going to be a vaccine available as a third dose for everybody over 16 years of age he i think inadvertently sent out the message that this is not a two dose vaccine for the mrna vaccines in particular that that you really Fully protected. Only you've gotten the third dose. So I think suddenly people thought, "Wait, I'm not protected. Two doses is not protective." So I think what happened at the CDC meeting last Thursday, which was important, was they had a slide that said, "If you've received two doses of an mRNA vaccine, as you remember the general public, consider yourself fully vaccinated." But there are some groups which also benefit from from a, a booster dose. Now it really boils down to what is the goal of the vaccine. If the goal of the vaccine is to prevent serious illness. All the data to date in the United States that's been either published or presented have shown that the vaccine continues to be excellent at protection against serious illness, including both vaccines, including all age groups, and including with Delta right up to the present time. So we've met that goal. I think what happened here was that, that because this is true of every vaccine, the level of virus-neutralizing antibodies in your serum declines over time. And with that, there's a lesser protection against... Asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, where you still can be contagious. The thinking was, okay, well, let's sort of boost that immunity. Um, and so the the groups that the the key groups, the key two groups are one, people who are over 65 years of age, period. Two is people who are between 50 and and uh, and uh, and. Um, for 64 years of age who have a high risk medical condition so anybody over 50 with a high risk medical condition and anybody over 65 period then then the the advisory committee for immunization practices had more trouble with the next two groups so the next group was anybody who is over 18 who has a high-risk medical condition. And then the fourth group was anybody over 18 who works in a situation where transmission is likely to be high, like a hospital, for example. The reason they had trouble with that is that, to date, evidence is that two doses are excellent at protecting against serious illness, which is the goal. Also, once you get to the lower lower age limits, you know, the 18- to 29-year-old age group, then you're talking about risks like myocarditis, which, although rare, like roughly one per 20,000 people, are still nonetheless real. And if the benefit is not absolutely clear, then you have to consider that risk. So under those two circumstances, meaning greater than 18 and working in a condition where transmission is high or greater than 18 with a high-risk medical condition, there they were more uh, equivocal and basically um, left it up to the the individual, especially one with a high-risk medical condition, to speak with their doctor.
3: Did you vote in favor of these conditions on the panel, Dr. Offit, or did you have reservations about it? Since I know that you have said so many times that it's very important to get shots in people who are unvaccinated, who have not been vaccinated yet around the world.
4: And that's the point. And, and the C- the CDC, to their credit, had a slide that said on it right at the top, The priority is vaccinating the unvaccinated. So if you talk, for example, about vaccinating people over 50 who have a high risk medical condition, the fact remains that if you look at people in in hospitals who are in the intensive care unit, the problem isn't that they haven't gotten a third shot. The problem is that they haven't gotten any doses. And and that's the issue. And so really the question comes, that's why your question is important is is to what extent vaccinating people who are already vaccinated, how is that going to move the needle of the pandemic by, by offering or affording possibly less contagiousness And we'll see. I mean, I hope it does, because that's really the goal here. But if we really want to change the arc of this pandemic, we have to find a way to vaccinate the unvaccinated. And that's been hard.
3: But you're good? You're good with this, where everybody landed on boosters?
4: Um. <laughs> Not really. I, I, I guess I think it's been so confusing the way it's been messaged. So now we're trying to make it clear that that two doses for the general population is fine. That you could, you know, that if you're over fifty, you might benefit from from, from getting a third dose in terms of protecting you against serious illness. But to date, all the data are that you are protected against serious disease right up to the present time, doesn't matter your age, both vaccines, there's really not clear evidence of fading immunity, nor would you expect there to be, because when you talk about protection against serious illness, the critical part of the immune response associated with that is immunological memory. And it looks like two doses of mRNA vaccines or even one dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine induces excellent immunological memory, which typically is lifelong. I mean, what isn't life, or or certainly for many years, what isn't lifelong is neutralizing antibodies in your bloodstream, which Always fade to some extent, and so that's when you talk about boosting to try and protect against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So if you're talking about that, if that becomes the goal, then you're really talking about yearly or every two year booster doses. And so that's what's been confusing: is this a three dose vaccine or is it a two dose vaccine that requires frequent booster dosing? Which is it? And I think it's been confusing in the messaging.
3: I see. The reason that I ask is because we do hear from our listeners who are concerned about whether or not they should get a booster, or maybe they got. Johnson & Johnson's vaccine and feel like they should run out and get another one and are unclear whether or not they, they should get Pfizer, if they're eligible to get Pfizer. The Pfizer booster is just for people who got Pfizer, right? And the Moderna booster is for people who got Moderna, correct?
4: That's correct. But we don't we don't have a uh, an, an EUA approval for the Moderna booster. It, it, it is, I think, right around the corner. And it's also a lesser dose. Oh, I mean, that's the- right.
3: I think, yes, you're right. M- Moderna is around the corner in terms of for for the older age group.
4: Yes, so it looks like that the the uh, the booster for the Moderna would be fifty micrograms, whereas the the normal dose is one hundred micrograms. Whereas it's the same dose for the Pfizer booster. That's why you really shouldn't mix and match.
3: Yes, though there, I have heard anecdotally of some cases of that people getting a Pfizer shot say after they got a different vaccine to start. It sounds like that's dangerous potentially.
4: Well, it's just it's just uh, there aren't. I'm not so sort of sure it's dangerous. I think we you you you're sort of waiting for the data to look at that. I, I certainly. Um, We need those data. I I wouldn't worry about danger so much as just wait till till you see, because, you know, when you're making it up and and I think not just a few people, I think a lot of people are doing that. Um, You know, I just wish we had the data to back that up and then a clear recommendation for the CDC on what to do.
3: Really quick, though, is Moderna booster? Is that approved for people with weakened immune systems who got Moderna? Do you know? Yes. Okay. Shannon and Albany is calling in. Let me get to her. Shannon.
2: Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I got my 13-year-old vaccinated, who was 12 at the time, like the very first day he was able to, and I intend to do the same with my 10-year-old. And it, yes, it is about avoiding COVID for them, but for me, much more, it's about avoiding the, the disruption and chaos of school for the past, you know, for the past two years, schools have been so profoundly affected and basically thought, thought of last throughout this whole pandemic in terms of keeping our schools open and keeping our kids in school. And one of the reasons why I feel like there's so much urgency to get this pediatric vaccine out is because the kids desperately need to be able to return to school. And even now in-person schools, we're constantly threatened with quarantines, modified quarantines, classrooms are shut down. And I'm in a district that's handling it very, very well, but this is happening all over the country. And we're also spending an, an inordinate amount of human and financial resources on testing on trying to keep these schools open in any way that we can and we're still experiencing lots of disruptions for children and it's time to prioritize kids and their educations here so that that's my comment and i would love to hear from the speaker about you know if the schools are any kind of uh, motivator here for getting this done as quickly as possible thank you
3: jen and thanks dr
2: offett
4: Right. I, I don't think anything's going to push this process to go any quicker. Although I certainly agree um, with with the caller that, I mean, schools in, in school learning is is really critical. It's much better, obviously, than virtual learning. It's important for socialization. Um, in Philadelphia, it's, it's often for many children, the only decent meal they get during the day. Child abuse is often recognized in schools, which now isn't happening. So, you know, there's, you've seen evidence, you know, increase in teenage suicide and childhood depression because of this lack of socialization. So we should treat schools exactly the way that you've described it, which is preciously, and do everything we can to make sure that, that the virus isn't transmitted in schools, which means if we have a vaccine for 12, people over 12, they should get it. Teachers should all get the vaccine. For children less than than uh, 12 years of age, you know, masking has to make, we have to make sure that that's all put in place because we want children to stay in school. So should we do we should do everything we can to keep them in school. And I feel Feel like when you see protests against mass, mask mandates or protests against vaccines it just breaks my heart because ultimately it's the children that suffer this ignorance
3: well, let me go to nicole in cloverdale hi nicole
2: hi good
5: morning thank you for taking my call doctor i i wouldn't say that it's ignorance i have to disagree with that but one of the comments i wanted to make is that you know i am a former military member so i'm definitely not against vaccines as i have had multiple vaccines or else I was going to be forced to be uh, discharged. Um, my son is currently vaccinated with, uh, he's three years old, he'll be four, so he's vaccinated with um, what was suggested by our doctor. So here's my concern. Being almost four years old, never sick, very healthy, this kid chooses fruit over fruit snacks. Why would I, and this is my right as a parent to ask for this, why would I choose to... Um, Vaccinate my child without, mind you, my four-year-old child, without cause of, um, maybe I shouldn't say cause, but without the right data, since you like to use that word so much, the right data of of effects. So, you know, I'm not saying that vaccines do cause, um, you know, different health issues, but, but with this vaccine, my concerns are, what is our next Step if we choose to vaccinate our four-year-old to get into kindergarten next year, um, m- mind you, he's vaccinated with everything else. That's my my biggest my biggest concern with um, with our four-year-old. Now, mind you, my husband and I we did choose to get vaccinated um, because we do work in the um, we work in the hospitality industry. We do have elderly, you know, family and who are immune compromised. However, my Son, that's my only, my only um,
3: concern is these little, there are yeah.
5: exposed to so much at such a critical time. So you know?
3: Nicole, I, th- I think I understand what you're asking, which is why once there is a vaccine for COVID available for children under five, would you do it with what could potentially be limited data? Like for example, what we're looking at with the one that was submitted uh, in terms of data, this was a test, as you say, Dr. Offit, on this was a trial on less than 2,300 kids. So what is your response to Nicole?
4: So here's what I would say. So first of all, when um, and if we have a vaccine, say for the six-month-old to five-year-old, um, we should look at the data. And, and you can look at the data because when, when the, the when the company submits its data, usually in this sort of fifty to hundred page document, and then the FDA also submits its 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 review of those data. That's all available on the FDA's website for the public, so you can look at those data. Um, then what you can you can you can look at what what are the statistics? I mean, right now we know that roughly two hundred to two hundred thousand. Two hundred fifty thousand children every week are being infected with this virus. So, if you're, you're the question you need to answer, and you can get this off the CDC's website as well, is what percentage of those children are less than five years of age? And of those that are less than five years of age, what percentage of those are hospitalized or killed by this virus? So then, then you can look at the relative risks and benefits, and and you could choose to wait. You could say, okay, I'm going to wait till the first two, three million doses are out there to make sure that there's not even a rare side effect. You could make that choice. Um, You know, this comes up all the time. When when we um, agreed, when the FDA basically um, approved under EUA the the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds, that was a 2,300-child study, roughly. And so half got the vaccine, half didn't. There were 18 cases of COVID in that study, all in the placebo group. When that vaccine was was approved under EUA, I got a lot of hate mail from, from parents saying, 2,300 children, that's it? You just did like a 40,000 person trial for the Pfizer vaccine or 30,000 for the Moderna vaccine for adults, and now you do 2,300 children? So my one response would be, okay, we could do 23,000 children, in which case then there wouldn't be 18 cases of COVID. There would have been 180 cases of COVID. Um, presumably all, most, if not all, placebo group. So there's always sort of what price do you want to pay for knowledge? And, and when can you feel comfortable moving forward? Because you never know everything. The question is, when do you know enough? And that that's a hard question to answer.
3: Dr. Hoffer, this is reminding me a lot of the discussion you have in your book about Jonas Salk and his polio vaccine and the fact that it was proven to be safe and effective among a smaller group of kids. But Uh, people wanted a bigger group, a larger group. Can you talk about that example before we get into some of the other things that happened related to the polio vaccine, at least why Salk was heartbroken that they delayed authorizing this vaccine?
4: Sure. So as, as, as a child of the 50s, as a first and second grader in the 1950s, this was a very emotional story for me. When Jonas Salk made his vaccine, he made it by taking polio virus, growing it up in cell culture, purifying it, and then killing it with a chemical formaldehyde. Then what he did was he tested it in the Pittsburgh area and 700 children in and around the Pittsburgh area found that it introduced an excellent immune response and was safe and declared to his wife, Donna, I've got it. Um, and then came the, the, the study that broke his heart, um, which is to say the March of Dimes insisted on doing a large prospective controlled study looking at whether his vaccine worked. So 420,000 children were given vaccine, 200,000 were given placebo, saltwater, that broke his heart because he could not, in his conscience, giving salt water to first and second graders in the mid-1950s when you knew polio virus would paralyze as many as 30,000 children a year and kill 1,500. And so when the trial was finished, um, Thomas Francis, who was in charge of the trial, stood up at the University of Michigan and said the three famous words, safe, potent, and effective. Those three words were on the headline of every major newspaper in this country. Church bells rang out. Synagogues held spe- special prayer meetings. Departments were stopped. To make that announcement, it went over Voice of America to Europe. It was a celebratory moment. So how did we know it was effective? We knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. We knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group. Those children were my age. But for the flip of a coin, they could have led a long and productive life. And that that's always stuck with me. Just that those sort of gentle heroes that we left behind that never get mentioned in how you how it comes to be that you get to say the word effective.
3: And so that's really what you get at in your book with regards to Yes, we might be wanting bigger studies and they may very well be warranted, but, but it's, it's a choice that we're constantly making choices about people's lives
4: absolutely i mean it's it's you know when when do you move forward and this is going to happen now when when we get to the five to eleven year old and the six month to, to five year old you know you, you you i think parents sometimes wrongly think that that the 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 a choice not to do something um is a risk-free choice but it's not it's just a choice to take a different risk and that getting to your previous caller what is that risk how can i define that risk how can i feel comfortable moving forward should i wait Should I wait until a few million doses are out there? And while you're waiting, you may find out, unfortunately, that, you know, your child may have been one of the ones that were infected. We certainly know more children are getting infected now. Delta has reached down into children. It has found out that children are fully susceptible to this virus and is, is causing harm.
3: Articulate for me what people are choosing when they choose not to get vaccinated.
4: Right, well, I think they 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 assume that that is the safer choice. That doing nothing is 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 a safe choice, but doing nothing is doing something. It's making a choice to put your child at a different risk. That then that's that's the issue of assigning risk. And benefit. I mean, you know that, for example, in, in the sixteen to seventeen year old, that that those children had about a 1 in 5,000 chance of having myocarditis, inflammation of the uh, heart muscle associated with mRNA vaccines. Now, the good news, if there's ever any good news about myocarditis, is that it was short-lived and, and uh, transient and self-resolving. But um, again, you know, it's, it's hard to watch that.
3: Yes, and as you articulated in your book, it's a choice to risk infection, hospitalization, and potentially long-term disability. Your point about how not doing something is still a choice. We'll be talking more with Paul Offit after the break. Stay with us.
6: We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go.
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Paul Offit. Professor of Pediatrics and Vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, a member of the FDA Vaccine Advisory Panel, also co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. His new book is You Bet Your Life, From Blood Transfusions to Mass Vaccination, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. You, our listeners, can join the conversation. If you have questions about, say, for example, the COVID vaccine for five to 11-year-olds in light of the fact that Pfizer has submitted data on its initial trial. Also, if you have questions about boosters for adults or anything that you are hearing from Dr. Offit with regard to the situation that we're in now with vaccine uptake. 866 6786 is the number. 866-733-6786 at KQED Forum on Twitter or Facebook. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. Michael tweets, many of the vaccine-hesitant people I know resist the mRNA technology, calling it gene therapy. Will there be a conventional killed virus vaccine for COVID? Your reaction to that, Dr. Offit?
4: So there is, I mean, the, uh, Sinopharm in China has two actually vaccines that are whole killed viral vaccines given as a two dose, uh, two doses several weeks apart. Um, not quite as effective as the mRNA vaccine. So that exists. Um, also Novavax, which has a purified protein vaccine, sort of similar to the hepatitis B vaccine or human papillomavirus vaccine. They just published in the New England Journal of Medicine, again, about a two dose trial showing efficacy that that's excellent, certainly against severe disease. So I, I do think you will start to see these vaccines come into the United States because I think this virus is going to be with us for a while. And we may find that there are different strategies, offer different safety profiles, offer different duration of immunity, and and uh, I think we'll be watching that happen over the years.
3: We had talked before the break about the polio vaccine. Can you talk about the other side of this, which I think is really interesting? This book, You Bet Your Life, you highlight a lot of, of examples of, really terrible things that happened related to medical innovation, manufacturing errors or, or hubris even. First, can you describe the tragedies that occurred around the polio vaccine? Because I think it's also related to some of the things that we've been talking about today.
4: Right. So, so when Salk made his polio vaccine and then it was released in April, uh, middle of April of 1955, five companies stepped forward to make it. Um, one of them, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, made it badly. So they failed to fully inactivate the polio virus that was in the vaccine. As a consequence, about 120,000 children were inoculated with live, fully virulent polio virus. About 40,000 developed abortive polio, meaning short-lived paralysis. 164 were permanently paralyzed for the rest of their lives, and 10 were killed. I, I think it was probably the worst biological disaster in this country's history and led to, to the birth of vaccine regulation in the United States, the creation of the Division of Biologic Standards. And now we have a much higher standard for vaccines than we had then. I mean, and, and it's, uh, it's invariably true that, the uh, as Michael Harris says, the history of drug regulation is built on tombstones.
3: Why are you highlighting this at this time when so many public health officials are trying to get people to, say, trust the innovation of the vaccine right now for COVID?
4: Well, I think I think people have to have a realistic look at, 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 at how we learn. I, I mean, we do learn in fits and starts. I think people get upset, for example, when, when Dr. Fauci say, says makes one recommendation and then uh, a couple months later makes another recommendation. But he does that because... We learn as we go, because uh, I think one of the the strengths of science and scientists is that we're willing to throw textbooks over our our back shoulder as we learn more and more. And and, and it's that circumspection that I think is what makes science uh, and scientists uh strong in that sense, that, that you're willing to, to go with new data. And I just think, you know, as I go through like this, the, the book, if you take sort of blood transfusions as an example, I mean, a couple hundred years ago, we used farm animals as our source of blood when we transfused ourselves. And so I sort of go through the story of blood transfusion and say, OK, well, would you get a blood transfusion then? OK, so now we don't use farm animals anymore because people had terrible reactions because of blood type mismatch. OK, so now we learn about blood typing, ABO blood typing. OK, well, would you get a get uh, blood transfusion? now but we still don't know about rh blood typing the sort of an o positive it's the positive part okay so now we know about rh uh, factor which would, would you get a blood transfusion now so then hepatitis b virus or hepatitis c virus enters the blood supply in the 40s 50s okay so now we have tests to detect those viruses. would you get would you get a blood transfusion now then what enters the blood supply in the 1980s that kills thousands and thousands of people hiv right as as aids comes into this country all right would you get a blood transfusion now that we know about hiv and and so how would you get a blood transfusion today knowing that there are, are viruses that we um either don't know about or or don't detect because we don't detest all possible viruses and and when you get whole blood would you get a blood transfusion now or would you choose to get artificial blood you know there, there's now some sort of first steps into the into the uh, land of artificial blood and it, it's always true you know would you get would you get a, a heart so there are four thousand people on the heart transplant waiting list 1300 will die while waiting die so would you be willing to be one of the first to get a pig heart we do have some work with using pig valves in people so it's not completely nascent would you do that it's, it's about making decisions under uncertainty and and i think there's always a, a level of uncertainty and, and when we learn things as we go it doesn't mean you can't trust science that's exactly why you can trust science and i think that's what i'm trying to get for in, this, in this book is to have a realistic understanding of the way this plays out. When people saw, for example, myocarditis or they saw blood clots associated with uh, the J&J or AstraZeneca vaccines, you know, they go, see, that's why I can't trust science. But the fact of the matter is people were always looking for these very, very rare side effects. And that severe blood clotting problem occurred in one in 500,000 people. That tells you how closely we're looking. I'm just trying to get people to take a realistic look at medical innovation, what, what it can and, and can't do.
3: Let me go to Karen the East Bay. Hi, Kira.
2: Hi, I'm calling. Thank you for having this conversation. You're talking to us like we're adults, and we can fully understand what this is, what this is why people are so so skeptical in the first place. Um, but I appreciate it. But my question is, I had gotten vaccinated gladly, and I had a weird side effect. And I just wanted to know, do you have to be a part of to collect the data on different side effects for the vaccine or for getting um, the virus? Or can you, is there a place where we can add our our information and what our symptoms are? Um,
7: hmm.
2: I, so thanks. far, I, I don't know about that. And I would love to, you know, I think it would bring people um, to feel less skeptical and more part of the whole data
3: process. Thanks. Dr. Offit?
4: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, first of all, I think it's reasonable to be skeptical. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. I mean, if you'd asked me last September, would I get a COVID vaccine? My answer would have been not till I see the data. So skepticism's is okay. It's cynicism that I think is, is something we have to fight against. The, the short answer to your question is yes. If you have something that you think was a side effect associated with the vaccine, you weren't part of a trial, so it's not going to be recorded there. There's something called the vaccine adverse events reporting system or VAERS. You can find it online. You just submit Fill out a one-page form and send it in. It's sort of co-monitored by the CDC and and the FDA. That that program was born in the uh, in the mid 1980s, 1986, associated with the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, and so it's there. I mean that. And so so what that that is is a hypothesis generating mechanism. In other words, let's say you have a particular side effect that's unusual, and then you see that a number of people are 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 submitting uh, forms that say that's unusual, and then so then you can look to see whether or not that's a, a coincidental association or a causal association by looking at people who were vaccinated, compare them to people who were unvaccinated, and see if it's seeing if it's occurring more commonly in the vaccinated group, which was how myocarditis was picked up. Those were people who were submitting, uh, forms like the one I'm talking to you about now, who had this sort of unusual, uh, uh, symptoms associated with their heart. And then you saw that it was happening, you know, more commonly in boys and young men. It was happening more commonly after the second dose. It was happening four days after the second dose. And when they did the studies, they found out that that was a real causal association, not a coincidental association. So that's the program, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System.
3: Thank you. Let me go to Joyce in San Francisco. Hi, Joyce. Hi. Um, I'm calling because um, I'm
7: eligible for the vaccine, but I went to the pharmacist. Oh, let me go back. I got the Pfizer. I didn't know I had a choice. Um, I live in a retirement community uh, where everybody got Pfizer. Uh, so I went to the pharmacist to get because uh, Moderna because I think it's the better vaccine. Um, and you mean for the booster? They wouldn't give it, wouldn't give it to me, of course. So, um, and, and they, they, the Pfizer said he'd lose his license. Anyway, I'm, I am traveling at Christmas time, and what I want to know is, at some point, they're going to approve mixing the two, Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, is it foolish to wait? Hmm. Uh, is it possible that they will? approve that uh, mixing them
3: Joyce, uh, before, th- uh, before when? Okay, Joyce, thanks. Um,
4: we certainly need to generate the data. And you'd like to see the data generated before you make that choice. I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, If are you, you're over 65? Can I assume that? Yeah, I'm in my
7: late
4: 80s. So that, that's a yes. Okay. Um, Right, so you would definitely benefit from a third dose. I would say, were I you, um, you've got you got two doses of Pfizer vaccine. I would get the third dose of Pfizer vaccine. That's what I would do. I mean, I'm over 65. I got two doses of Pfizer vaccine. I think I'm going to get the third dose of Pfizer vaccine at some point, although I'm in a rush to do it. Um, but to, to best protect yourself, but you should feel comfortable that that you know you still are relatively protected against severe disease. Um, doesn't mean you shouldn't exercise caution but I, I would just I mean because I think it's the Pfizer the Moderna dose as a booster dose is probably going to be 50 um, micrograms and so what what your pharmacist probably has on, in stock now is the 100 micrograms so we don't really know anything about that as a, a booster for Pfizer you know much less as a booster even for the people who got a first two doses of Moderna because it looks like it's going to be a 50 microgram dose Well,
3: Stephen writes, I've read that the Pfizer vaccine's effectiveness has waned quite a bit more than the Moderna and that it has been attributed to the higher dose of the Moderna. Is that true?
4: So, so waned in the sense of protection against asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, that's true. Um, I don't know whether it's, it's o- owing to the dose. I mean, they are different molecules. They're not exactly the same molecule. One was generated by this BioNTech. This is Pfizer's vaccine in Germany. Um, the Moderna vaccine was, uh, with all the primary research was done at the National Institutes of Health here. Um, so they are different molecules, and, but do- dose may, may play a role in it.
3: Well, and this listener wants to know, what do you think of schools mandating vaccines for kids? Is that an effective way to get more people vaccinated?
4: It's certainly an effective way to get parents angry. I think there's, you know, already you're seeing people angry at masking, which is, you know, certainly benign. Um, I don't know. You'd like to think in a better world that that this wouldn't be an issue, that that if people looked at the data and and were comfortable that the the vaccine was safe and effective, that they would get it. I mean, when I used the word ignorant before, uh, what I was referring to was was people, adults who were choosing not to get vaccinated. I mean, how much more data do you want to to tell you that the vaccine Is safe and effective and prevents you from being hospitalized or or going to the ICU or going to the morgue. I mean, we couldn't have more data at this point. I just feel like that is a certain level of either, however you want to define it, willful ignorance or incredible selfishness to choose not to vaccinate. I mean, when I rounded in our hospital uh, last week, you know, we 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 had a 19-year-old, you know, who was who was sick and, you know, and, and he's sick, he's struggling for, for his for breath. And, you know, the, neither of the parents are vaccinated. And this was hard enough last year. I mean, he could have been vaccinated, he wasn't. His parents could have been vaccinated, he wasn't. And, uh, and, and this year, what makes it all the harder is this is preventable. It's so hard to watch children suffer. You can't help but get frustrated and angry.
3: I imagine that is the case. I should remind listeners that we're talking with Dr. Paul Offit. His new book is You Bet Your Life, and uh, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I imagine that it is incredibly frustrating. But do you think, based on all of these examples, as I was reading your book, of some of the medical mishaps that have occurred, that there's something in our collective memory that gets stuck there so that we're focused more on on that toll and it affects people's confidence in medical innovation, especially one as quickly as a vaccine like this. Yes, no, I think I think
4: it is it is a little frightening. I I agree with that, and it's it's also interesting that um, people tend to acqu- tend to believe that a vaccine is more dangerous if they they see the the. the the virus, in this case, as being more dangerous. So, so for example, people will assume that an, an anthrax vaccine is relatively dangerous, and a Ebola vaccine is relatively dangerous because they see those diseases as dangerous. I think that's part of what's going on here too. But I think at the heart of this is that that it's uncomfortable for people to be injected or to inject their child with a biological agent that they don't understand very well. And and it's that is understandable. So when that's true then, it becomes a matter of trust. And and who are you asking people to have trust in? You're asking them to have trust in the pharmaceutical industry, in the in the medical establishment, in the government, and there's been a pretty significant erosion in that kind of trust.
3: Do you think the rapid development and rollout of these three highly Effective COVID vaccines is actually a sign that medical innovations do not carry the degree of risk that they used to.
4: Yes, I think that is true. I I I think that we're much better, but not completely there. I mean, I have, for example, in the gene uh, therapy section, you know, which is now re- relatively recent, just in the last 10, 15 years. Um, There there was one particular gene therapy used by French researchers using a so-called retrovirus. I mean, the advantage of a retrovirus is it can directly insert itself into DNA and provide you with a gene that you, you would need. So, for example, if you have sickle cell disease, which is a single gene disease, it could provide that. Or if you have cystic fibrosis, which is a single gene disease, it could provide that. Um, And what they found out, uh, much to their chagrin, was that they happened to, that virus happened to insert itself, and this is recently, onto an area right before a gene that actually sort of put you at high risk of leukemia. And so three of the, the, four actually, four of the first 10 children in that trial got leukemia, one of whom has already died. I mean, so, and that's recently. So we do, we do always learn, I think, as we try and break down barriers, in this case, gene therapy, you know, you're going to find some unpleasant surprises. So it's not completely behind us.
3: But be clear-eyed, it sounds like you're saying. Um, well, the listener writes, my 20-year-old daughter is obese with recently diagnosed diabetes and NASH, or NASH. Should she get the booster?
4: Yes, she, she, she has she has high-risk factors, such as um, diabetes is a high-risk factor, and, and certainly obesity is, is one of the highest risk factors. So I think that she probably would benefit from a booster, yes.
3: Kimberly writes, Israel seems to have set a higher bar with the COVID vaccine by giving everyone boosters and therefore cutting down on any transmission. Why aren't we setting the bar as high in the U.S.?
4: Right. So that's the question. The question is, is if we give a booster and will no doubt decrease the incidence of um, asymptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, will that make a difference in our in our pandemic? It's not it's not clear to me that's true. First of all, Israel started about three, three and a half months. For us, they have a higher general vaccine rate than we do. Um, So I'm not sure Israel directly um, corresponds to our stuff. Um, But but um, and so I do do um, worry that we're sort of diverting our attention to some extent to these booster dose. And we're kind of created this kind of third dose fever, whereas the real problem in this country is getting people who are unvaccinated to be vaccinated because they are basically the source of this pandemic at the moment.
3: Well, let me see if I can get one last question. John writes, I'm over 65 and immunosuppressed due to having a solid organ transplant, and I'm not alone in that. I've received a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine, which has been characterized as not a booster, but is completing the primary series. Will I and others like me need a booster in six months? John goes on to say, and thank you, Dr. Offit, for all you have done to champion vaccines over your career.
4: Well, thank you. and And that's a critical question is this just a three dose vaccine and and i think when people have put that forward as a three dose vaccine what they're saying is that, that in order to induce excellent high levels of so-called memory cells the kind of things that will protect you against serious illness for years and perhaps longer we need three doses in the much the same way we need a hepatitis b vaccine is a three dose vaccine or polio vaccine is a three dose vaccine um, But when they're talking about trying to prevent asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic infection, which really depends on keeping the level of neutralizing antibodies high, then you're really talking about a booster. So I think that definition is critical. It's a really good point.
3: Well, Dr. Offit, really appreciate you being on with us today, taking our listeners' questions and for the research that you've done with this book, which on the surface may scare people, but really what you are trying to show is that medical innovation is something that comes with risks, and we cannot expect 100% safety and full information every time. It's a good thing to remember. Dr. Roffitt, thanks so much. Thank you. And I want to thank our listeners for sharing their questions, comments, and Susan Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the
6: members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation,